Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time checking out the show, well, welcome to you. Every week, we talk all things Disney, pop culture, never before heard stories, and behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, park, theme park attractions, performances, books, and so much more. I'm one of your co hosts, Al John Go. I'm a musician, being a longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars fan, pop culturist, and you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Mm-hmm. How are you, Al John? I'm good, Dave. I signed up. I've got the email. I am getting my COVID shot. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So I go on Tuesday and Kristen, my wife, gets hers on Wednesday. So it's awesome. Uh, I'm fine. I'm so I'm so just excited. <laughs> something I, I I was when I got my first shot and and I'm looking forward to getting my second shot in in a couple three weeks that's, uh, that's awesome. so uh once I have that uh I'm still gonna wear a mask I'm still going to be cautious uh but boy I think that we're really coming out uh of the back end of this whole thing you know Absolutely. and the more people that can get vaccinated the better right and speaking of coming out the back end I mean come on we've got some great news Absolutely Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines it's Skull Rock Podcast headline news The most magical place on earth is opening back up Dave I know. April 30th, they've announced that uh, Disneyland will reopen at reduced capacity. Uh, And you're also going to see Six Flags Magic Mountain in Southern California, as well as other Six Flags parks opening up in early April. Uh, Legoland in California is reopening next month as well. So, you know, like I've said, a flower blooming. It's springtime, <laughs> Al John, and the flowers are going to start to bloom and open up. And uh, that's what's going to be happening with all of these theme parks, movie theaters. Uh, all of it is going to start to reopen and we're going to get back to some kind of normalcy, even if it's at a reduced capacity normalcy. Right. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's going to take some time for people to kind of get back to that that mojo anyway you know to to get out there i mean and but the good news is people are getting back to work as well you know you've got 10,000 plus furloughed employees at disney you know coming back to work you've got 98% of the amc movie um you know chains opening back up um which is wonderful you know i mean uh, we we are we're slowly coming back to life and the cruise lines the cruise lines are even um, this June starting to ramp up again, you know, so this is good. This is really good. 
this is all really good. And, you know, I, I keep saying it's going to be the roaring 20s. And yeah. boy, I, I think there's been such pent up demand and, you know, people trying to, you know, be safe and stay in their homes. I, I think people are just going to want to get the heck out uh, uh, and go out to the movie theaters. I know I'm going to. I, I'm going to go see some of the, the bigger films that, that are coming out in the, in the next few months. Man, I can't uh, wait. So I'm Can looking I, forward to it. I can't wait, Dave. I can't wait to get out of the house with the kids and the wife and go to a drive-in, go into a theater, and actually check out movies. Now, I saw something about Tenet um, on HBO Max. Is it also going to be released in theaters or no? I don't Did know. Are that? they going to re-release it? Because they tried releasing it last year, and they obviously it, it didn't get seen very, very much in theaters. Wow. And then they put it on HBO Max, and I, I don't know what's happening yeah. there. But did, did you honestly, finally watch it? Did you finally watch it? Was that? Did you finally watch it? No, I didn't watch it because okay. that's one of those films. You know, look, yeah. I want to see it on a movie screen. Yeah, because see, that's what I'm hoping that they're going to do. That's what I'm hoping. Um, yeah. You know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that we we didn't see, so I'm hoping we get to see it on the big screen. Um, but anyway, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I know that uh, we've got some events happening. Speaking of AMC, um, one of my favorite people of all time is Ashley Eckstein. She is the best, and she is the voice of Ahsoka Tano. She is the uh, former Disney cast member. She's been on the Disney Channel uh, in several roles, and she's actually going to be hosting an event. I'll just put it out there because um, she is a friend. Uh, check it out Wednesday on the 24th, just a few days away when you hear this, at 5 p.m. at Disney Springs there in Orlando. Orlando, uh, celebrate Women's History Month as Ashley talks about curating your dreams. It's a free event. Tickets available first come, first serve uh, starting tomorrow, Monday, or today, Monday, when you hear this. It's going to be at the AMC Theater. Tickets distributed starting at 9 p.m., and you'll be able to check out the uh, Q&A at the end. And there is, uh, of course, social distancing and and uh, walk-ins will not be admitted, so you have to get tickets to this. So please check it out. And for more details on this uh, special event, it's a limited capacity, limited right? Limited capacity okay. event over there at AMC. Check they're they're going to do a limited capacity. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah, Check it out on Disney Springs Instagram. I think that's awesome. You know, look, yep. you know, I, I honestly, I, I have to say, Al John, with the movie theaters opening and you've got all these multiplexes across the country, I think they should devote one screen uh, in some of these multiplexes, each, each multiplex devote one screen to play movies that we missed over the pandemic on the big screen. And maybe you do tenant for a week or maybe you do tenant for three days uh, uh, of screenings for people who want to see those films on a big screen. Yeah, put it on uh, IMAX. I, mean, I, I yeah. hope that I hope the theaters come up with I hope the theaters work with the with the with the movie studios and come up with some inventive way to put a couple of those. I'd like to see Wonder Woman 1984 yes. on a big screen. Yes. Uh, you know, let's get some of those uh, those films uh, out uh, into the movie houses. Yeah, let's bring some people there, you know, and I, I'm looking forward, like, I'm going to sign up for HBO Max when Mortal Kombat comes out, because then I can see the Snyder Cut, which came out this past week of Justice League, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. also Mortal Kombat. I can't wait for that to see some of those films out there, and uh, I think it'd be great, uh, great for the industry. It'd be great for the fans of movies out there. And speaking of DC, and, and yeah, go ahead, Dave. 
No, I, I was just going to, you you go for it. Okay. You, you were just speaking of DC movies, Hour yeah. uh, oh. Man, right? Yeah, Hour Man, a, a film with Gavin James and Neil Whitener uh, putting a script together for this, and they're developing that adaptation of that Hour Man comic. So once again, you know, they are mining comics for some great movie content. I personally... Uh, someone had said something about maybe the comic book movie um, well might be running dry. I personally don't see it as that because if there is good story, there can be good movies, right? doesn't always have Absolutely. to be. Yeah, I mean, just because it's based on a comic. I mean, look at The Walking Dead. A lot of people don't even realize The Walking Dead started from a comic, you know? Graphic so, novel, right? Graphic yeah. novels, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of comics, how about this, Dave? Did you... Did, I have to ask, did you finally finish WandaVision? Well, not only did I finish WandaVision, <laughs> but I also watched The Falcon and The Winter Soldier. Yay! All right. And, and actually, I took a chance and watched it on Friday. I, I was hoping that Disney <laughs> Plus wasn't going to crash. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, and we did the same thing. So we, we saw Falcon and Winter Soldier and blown away absolutely blown away it's once again they're delivering feige and the marvel studios team delivering cinematic quality to the tv streaming series uh you know uh, formula um it looks cinematic and uh, you know we actually have a friend uh that was actually uh sam wilson's uh you know nephew uh that we know from this nashville area that my wife actually was um uh, part of the child care uh, of this of this child uh, the after school program so we're like oh he's in it he really is in it legitimately i guess he couldn't say anything until the the, the show came out but uh it's nice to see um some great characters the character arcs being developed of these of these um you know they were secondary characters in the marvel uh, cinematic universe falcon and winter soldier much like wanda and vision they, they weren't you know the big avengers um you know, so it's great that they're getting their chance to shine and set up uh, what will be an awesome series. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I, I, listen, the production value is off the charts. Yeah. Absolutely off the charts. I mean, just incredibly well done. Uh, and uh, I enjoyed watching it, I have to say. Uh, you know, it was great seeing Bucky back mm -hmm. in, in action. And uh, the fact that... Uh, you know, for 106, he looks pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he tried doing all those dating apps, and it didn't work out for him, Dave. Didn't work out, the dating apps. <laughs> but he, he still... He I still, know. I thought yeah. that was terrific. It, well, really it is. Was. It is. There's some nice twists in there. And I, I really appreciate that storytelling of, you know, he, he is a tormented character because, you know, Winter Soldier started as a bad guy. He was programmed. He had no choice. He was brainwashed. And now he's come from that as as a hero or trying to make good. And just like Sam Wilson, the, the Falcon, you know, trying to do great after being blipped out of existence for five years, coming back and trying to help his family. It's a it's a good setup. And of course, you've got this this organization that is doing wrong. And uh, what are they going to do? So it was a good kind of start to this uh, new chapter in the MCU with Falcon and Winter Soldier. So be on the lookout for that every Friday from here on out uh, over the next uh, six, seven weeks. So 
It's going to be great. It's it's good stuff. Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, you know, we've got uh, a fantastic guest. Uh, Dave Proxma, the animator, is uh, in our lavish green room, uh, <laughs> relaxing at the moment. But I think we should get to him uh uh, next, let's do it. Uh, he's, yeah. he, he's a terrific, terrific artist and terrific animator, and lots to talk about with him. Skull Rock Podcast interview time. Al John, I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this all week, like I have been every week with our guests. Uh, we've got a wonderful animator, a wonderful artist, uh, Dave Proxma, who has been a character animator, a supervising animator, a directing animator. He's done story. He's done voices. Uh, he's a teacher. Uh, I mean, he's just run the gamut of stuff. And I really want to welcome Dave Proxma to our show. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, you know, I, we were talking uh, while you were in the green room uh, a little bit about the uh, fact that uh, you and I have worked together for many, many years uh, when you were at the Disney studios. And then when you left Disney, I hadn't seen you in person in like 20 years, uh, but, and, and where does the time go? It seems like it was only yesterday. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I followed your exploits on, um, uh, social media. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was where you grew up and the fact that you started out at Pratt Institute, when you went to college, you went to Pratt Institute in New York city and then came out to California Institute of the Arts. So how did that all come about? Well, uh, I, I grew up about as far away from Hollywood as you can. Uh, I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, which is about seven miles outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and it was, it was kind of a suburban, but kind of rural place. You know, we had creeks and, you know, it was the battlefields of, of you know, uh, of the Civil War. You know, we found mini balls in our backyard and stuff like that. It was a great time to grow up because, um, you know, we could just kind of run free. Uh, no one even had fenced in yards at that time. You know, you just kind of could play around whatever you wanted. But, um, uh, you know, really far from Hollywood. And then just all of a sudden, I, I started developing an interest at a very early age for animation. Um, you know, I, uh, back in the early 60s, Hanna-Barbera kind of, kind of was the king of television animation, but, uh, you know, with the Flintstones and the Jetsons and stuff like that. But um, Disney also had their show on on Sunday nights. Uh, and I knew, even as a, a young, young kid, that there was a difference between the animation of Ludwig van Drake than there was with Hanna-Barbera stuff. And I liked them both, but for different reasons. You know, obviously, if there was a when push came to shove, the Disney show, show would always win. Um, and it wasn't until I saw a color broadcast, one of our neighbors bought a new color TV in the, in the early 60s uh, and invited me to see Alice in Wonderland uh, in color. Uh, I think it was 1964, so I was like seven. Um, and I remember sitting there and just being blown away by the um, golden afternoon sequence and the uh, uh, mad tea party. And I remember as a kid, I just turned to my parents who were sitting on the couch behind me and I said, I just wanted the TV and said, that's what I want to do. And then slowly I began learning how to do flip books. And, mm. and, and, and um, you know, everything I did was about animation. Yeah. Uh, you know, making cutout films on Super 8 and, and all of that all through high school. When we had a, um, a, a report to do, I'd say, can I do a film? <laughs> so 
So when it came time to go to college, I said, (laughs) I'm on the East Coast, and there were really very few schools teaching animation, and Pratt Institute was one of them. This was in the mid-70s. So I applied to Pratt thinking I wouldn't get in. It was very exclusive. Um, And lo and behold, I did. So the next thing I knew, I found myself in Brooklyn uh, working, you know, learning a lot about drawing and about film and whatnot. And and that was a tough neighborhood back then, that that area of Brooklyn, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of of a rough area. Yeah. Yes, yes. In fact, me and the woman I ended up marrying, um, Sue, we were the only two people I knew that weren't mugged. (laughs) Innocent faces or something. <laughs> I, I believe that. I, I have to say that uh, now uh, that those parts of Brooklyn are all the shishi places to live now. You know, there, there's been a big uh, gentrification that happened. But so you, you were at Pratt Institute. How did you hear about Cal Arts? Well, I was at Pratt for two years. Um, I did the foundation uh, classes, which I'm really glad I did because I got a lot of my humanities out of the way. And I got some really, really strong foundational classes in life drawing, color and design, the kinds of foundational uh, classes that you just can't seem to find really good ones anymore. And this was like a classical training. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I started taking animation classes in my second semester there. Um, and a lot of the teachers that were there were working animators in New York at the time, working at, you know, Xander's and, and uh, you know, uh, a bunch of the other uh, uh, little studios there. And, you know, there were some people, there were a number of people in the class, but I just didn't feel like I was getting the level of, of training that I felt I needed. So I actually talked to one of the teachers one day and I said, look, I, and you know, I, I'm, I really want to learn this craft. I really want to be a good animator. Um, what should I do? And he says, well, honestly, Dave, I've assessed your work and you know about as much as we know here. Uh, really, the industries in California, you really should go there. So I left Pratt and, and looked up Cal Arts because that was the only other big school. And it was just really hitting its stride at that point. You know? mm-hmm. um, in 76, I'd say, 77. Yeah. Uh, and so I, um, I applied thinking, of course, again, you know, that's me, you know, I'll never get it. And I got this acceptance letter. And the next thing I knew I was, for lack of better words, packing up my stuff and moving to Beverly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a similar, similar story to a number of people that, that wound up at CalArts, including myself. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, um, uh, I, you were there really, I think, at the beginning of that program. Uh, and Jack Hanna was the, the head of the program. You had Bob McRae, you had T. He, you had Elmer Plummer, Bill Moore with design. Uh, was it yeah. Ken O'Connor for layout? Right, right. There were a lot of really great seasoned Disney talent that was teaching at the at the school at that point. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was way, way more than I could have ever even imagined. It was it was it was an amazing time. It was the shot in the arm you needed. It certainly was. And then I felt almost immediately like I was getting the training because what I did was I dovetailed onto that great fine art training that I got at Pratt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was starting to learn this character animation stuff. I kind of had to start over, but it was okay because Elmer Plummer had his own technique for, for drawing uh, for animation. Um, and, you know, they had like Xerox scenes of like from Lounsbury and stuff like that that you could roll through. Things from Song of the South and Lady in the Trap, really sophisticated stuff. And that was one of the first things you did was like 
start in between that. So it was kind of baptism by fire. It's like, okay, let's see what you got. Uh, and boy, those were tough, but exciting times. I remember I had hand wringing anxiety at first because everyone was so good, you know, and, and everybody was really there for the same thing. It was like a Mecca almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and every, everybody in your class wanted to ultimately get a job at Disney, right? Uh, a yeah, lot of them. A, lot, a of them. lot of them did. You know, honestly, I never thought I would work at Disney. I, I was, I was not one of those Disney bound people. I love the work. Yeah. But I would have been happy working at Hanna-Barbera or, or any of the studios. I just wanted to work in the industry and I wanted to do good work. Yeah. I I, the best I could be, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I was one of those people. I was going to head back to New York to do commercials and, and, and try and work for a place like Xander's and Associates or, yeah, or yeah, some, yeah, yeah. some of the, some of the boutique uh, studios that were in the New York area. Exactly. Um, but so you, you actually graduated from CalArts. No, I didn't. They pulled me out. Oh, you, Oh, you didn't. Okay. I thought you did graduate, but you didn't graduate either because most people didn't graduate. They got plucked out of the program. Right. Right. It, it was almost, I think it was almost if you graduated, there was something wrong with you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, I but, know. But I had, I, I got a very good education because of my two years at Pratt and my two years at uh, CalArts. I had heard that they wanted to pull me after my first year to go into training with Eric, but they wanted to see how I did with sound. You know, the first, back then, the first year we did a film that was silent. Right. And then the next year we started working with sound. So yeah. they said, let's keep him in one more year. But but then Jack called me into his office and said that I had gotten a, a, a full scholarship for the second year. So I was like, I'll stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. So so you got plucked out, you get over to the Disney Studios and and Black Cauldron's in production at that point. I mean, I think they had just finished, if I'm correct, they, they just finished uh, Fox and the Hound by yeah, the time you I, got there. I was already kind of connected with the studio at that point. You know, even though I was at CalArts, I went to the Fox and Hound uh, rap party, you know, because I knew some people that were already over there and we were friends. Yeah. So I got invited to that. So I kind of felt like I was part of that family even then. But I really started um, with a group of really talented people in um August, actually August 31st, 1981, we all came over there uh, from, you know, after we, we, we left CalArts at the end of that, that spring semester. Uh, and then we all waited the summer, you know, well worked. I, I think I worked in photo finishing for that summer. <laughs> you know, remember one hour photo? You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, now who, who went over with you? I mean, uh, you, you, there was a group of you. So I rattle off some names. I'm curious to, to see who was who your class. A very, very select group of people that were really great. You know, obviously there were a lot of great people already there that had been pulled the years in the years before. But there were people like Kathy Zelensky, Matt O'Callaghan, Tony Anselmo, Franz Vischer, um, Pat Ventura, uh, Tony DeRosa, Barbara DeRosa, uh, just like uh, Jill um, Colbert, uh, and just like. I think there were a couple more. I can't think of them off the top of my head. I'm trying to visualize the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful group of people, and we all were just we all kind of grew up together. Yeah, yeah. So there was this real convivial atmosphere. It wasn't competitive at all. We all helped each other, um, and of course, they threw us in these rooms on the second floor of the old animation building on the lot. Uh, and Eric's office was right next door. So Eric was constantly available to us all the time, which was like an amazing thrill. It was like almost giddy. 
know. yeah, he he's he's certainly the name that pops up mostly with with our generation of uh, of Disney artists because he was one of the last of the nine old men that was still there working, and he was primarily uh, mentoring and tutoring uh, uh, the uh, the new artists that were coming into the studio at that point. Yes, and if there was ever a man that was created for teaching, that would have been Eric Larson. Uh, yeah. An amazingly patient, kind, soft-spoken man. Everything you've ever heard about Eric is, is correct. He, is, he was just, he was the kind of person that all of us wish we were or we want to aspire to, um, which is one of the reasons I went into teaching was because of his kindness and, and giving back so much. Mm. But he was, there was never any ego involved. He was just very matter-of-fact about, about what, he, what he did. And, 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 you know, his techniques, you know, he was, he was sharing stuff that no one else was sharing at that time. And yeah. those of us, and there were hundreds, you know, several hundred of us that went through his program, I think got handed the gauntlet. In fact, I remember a specific meeting where he actually all but said that. So when he was, really? leaving, when he was leaving the studio, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I, you know, what was sad was he had been there for over 50 years, I think, or, or, or 50 years plus. Uh, and when he left, uh, I think he, he passed away like a year or two later. And, and I often, I often, yeah. And I often wondered, I, I wondered if he didn't retire and had stayed, would he, would he had kept going? You know what I mean? He was in perfect health. I mean, he was rosy cheeked. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, he seemed fine. And, you know, even after he left, some of us would see him from time to time and whatnot. He, but he went downhill fairly quickly yeah. uh, once he got ill. And I think a lot of it had to do with him just not feeling useful. Right. right? Yeah. That's, that's what he did. Yeah. 50 some years. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to let go of that. And, sure. just, you know, it's like then, then you have to ask yourself, and I'm sure you've asked this question. I know I've asked this question. Who are you if not that? Right, you know, right. You have to kind of reinvent yourself because you put so much of yourself into it as an actor, as an animator. Yeah. That it's, it, it's difficult to differentiate between yourself and those characters and that that persona. You know what yeah. I mean? Sure. So that's hard. So you're at the Disney Studios. You're working with Eric Larson, and your first picture is the Black Cauldron. New. <laughs> no. Uh, your, first, your first screen credit was, uh, or feature film was, was, your credit was on Black Cauldron, correct? Yes, it was. But um, yeah. I did come in and we they had just started production on Mickey's Christmas Carol. Oh, okay. So what they did was they put, those of us who made it through Eric's program went on to production. Uh, and I think all of us did, actually. I, don't, I can't think of anybody who didn't. Um, for that particular one. And, and they put us on, I was on F wing on the first floor, one F 11. Uh, I was sharing an office with Jay Jackson at that time. Great guy. So we, we became very close, but um, I was working as a pit, a pool, uh, rough in-betweener for um, Ed Gombert, who was animating at that time, Toby mm -hmm. Shaw and Jay Jackson. And basically they would produce animation and they would give me the scenes and I would be rough in-betweening them for them. Um, and eventually, within the first couple of weeks, Ed started slipping me some animation. Here, do this scene. Here, do this scene. So I was animating right away, even though my classification and pay was rough in-betweener. And then back then, you went from rough in-betweener to uh, uh, 
intermediate in between her. I can't remember what they call that. Two journeymen. Uh, and then you went assist, uh, you know, uh, beginning assistant, uh, intermediate assistant, and then journeyman assistant. Uh, and that's kind of the way it went. Yeah. We all kind of worked our way up pretty quickly to journeyman assistant. And back then you have to understand there were like a hundred people in the entire department, including ink and paint. So it was very, right. you knew everybody and everybody did everything. So when you finished working on your specific job, uh, like rough animation or rough in betweening, then you would do cleanup. So you learned everything. Sure. And uh, so I, that, then I would do cleanup for a while and then I would do um, checking. Some people painted cells. Uh, it, it was kind of just a free for all to get it done. <laughs> that so, was me. Yeah. I, I, when, I, I was one of the artists asked to uh, help paint cells uh, after animation was completed on Black Cauldron. And by the way, best education I had gotten on the whole back end of the animation process. Absolutely. I didn't yeah. know, check this stuff. You know, some you have to roll through seven drawings at a time and people are spinning around so you have to indicate what things are so that people don't get confused when they're painting and paint an elbow, the color of a scarf or something like that. You know, the, the work is so meticulous beyond the animation part of it. That's what got me. And very detailed. That's, that's lacking now because everything is so compartmentalized now, you know, back then, I think you do a better job at the job you're doing if you understand what comes before and after. Oh, absolutely. Without question. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, those were exciting and interesting times. Then I moved on to Cauldron and I was on Cauldron longer than any other film. I was on that film for like three years. <laughs> uh, it seemed like an eternity. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, just positive, but let me tell you, that was a real ordeal. <laughs> You know something, I, I, I'm laughing because I have wonderful stories and just sort of like unbelievable, like you're kidding me kind of stories uh, from Black Cauldron. But that film still has a has a, a real sweet spot for me because it was my first real picture. You know, it's the first picture I did in the industry. But I'm laughing because, you know, as well as I, there all of the stories that you could tell about that picture i mean is there any one particular story that pops to mind for you oh boy well oh now we have dead air because i can't think <laughs> you know it's yeah. totally fine we, you know we had we had uh, joe uh joe hale on uh uh last year on the show uh oh. you know the producer of the black oh, yeah. cauldron uh and uh and certainly a lot of the artists that we've had on since then have all had some you know, uh, some moment on the Black Cauldron. I mean, you know, it was it was just you know the the whole fair folk sequence, you know, uh, that got cut out, but but was completely animated. You know, um, uh, things like that, where you know, because I I actually remember going into an office when I first got to the studio, into the effects wing, and I walked into this office where my desk was going to be, and there was this mountain of animation scenes stacked against the wall, and I was like, "What's that?" I'm thinking to myself, "Oh my god, do I have to plow through that?" <laughs> and they were like, "And they were like, no, that's the fair folk sequence. It's been cut out of the movie." I'm like, "What?" You know, so. <laughs> Anyway, that's probably my best memory of that day. You jarred my memory. It was the, the 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 day that they brought all the animators, which is a vicious audience generally, you know, um, and uh, showed them the fair folk sequence in storyboard, and it was just kind of silent. <laughs> um, and uh, 
then all of a sudden like laughter started because it was just, it wasn't well conceived and they went back into it and did a, did a much better job on the second pass, but people were really laughing at it. And I remember there were certain lines that Taryn said that, that like just got stuck in our mind and we were laughing about it for years afterwards. I think at one point Taryn said, Oh, this miserable wetness. (laughs) <laughs> it was so very British <laughs> and, uh, uh, and all these frogs come out of something in the witches part or something like that yeah yeah uh, I think Fleur Flam says those were people <laughs> <laughs> but, you know we were, we were we were our own worst critics you know we would laugh at everything but we would also laugh at ourselves so. sure sure absolutely but but once you got through uh black cauldron you got elevated to animator for great mouse detective yes uh i was working they put me as an animating assistant with mark hen which is a great experience mark was nothing but a gentleman and he was patient and kind, and he really taught me a lot. I'll tell you what Mark taught me more than anything else, and I think people don't understand that as much these days as we did then, but Mark taught me about control and subtlety in animation. You know, everybody can make things move now. Everybody on the internet is an animator. Um, but it's that control of the drawings, that, 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 that performance, that essence, distilling, 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 which is what Eric used to teach. Um, and getting, you know, something that's clear and vivid, but not rubbery and, and uncontrolled. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and it's Mark, the, the subtlety, the emotion uh, of not having the character doing broad movements, but, but that just slow head turn and the, the look just right that, that sort of conveys the, the emotion and message of the scene. Yeah, it's finding the tone for the character and the scene. And I remember there was a scene in uh, Mouse Detective uh, where uh, they were tied to a mouse trap. I remember, and Daw- I was doing Dawson, and um, Basil was going on and on about something, you know, as he did, uh, and and you know he was coming up with a plan or something like that. And and um, the scene called for a close up of um, Dawson, kind of going, huh, you know, something like that. You know, he didn't say anything, but I mean, that was the gist of it. That was the subtext. Um, and I, I animated it where I had him go, you know, <laughs> and, uh, then, you know, I showed it to Mark and he says, nope, nope, too much. And I go, okay. So I pulled it back a little bit, kept pulling it back. I must've done that scene like 10 times, a simple little scene. And finally I was starting to get pissed off <laughs> in, in, inside. I didn't get pissed off outside. Sure, sure. Yeah. At myself. Um, and finally I said, I'm just going to do very little, you know, I'll raise an eyebrow and tilt the head just slightly. And. I showed it to Mark and he goes, that's it. So I had to do it a lot of times before it knocked, it got inside, but it was those kinds of experiences where you worked really hard on something and struggled to learn it that I think stuck with me more than any of other experiences because I would take those experiences with me to the next assignment. They never left me. Uh, It was the ones that were the toughest that, 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 that that stuck with me. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, but that's the that's the process of being an artist. You're 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 just uh, essentially uh, stuffing all of these experiences into your bag of tricks, uh, and, and you're learning and constantly learning because every picture is a learning opportunity. I think because you're being presented with 
new types of scenes or new types of characters that are going to act differently and you have to get into their heads, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, every single, every single picture that you did, especially when you have a continuity like we used to have at the studio, you know, you were there for, I was there for 20 years. So uh, the continuity was, you know, it's like, okay, I finished this film. As soon as you finish that film, you go into another film with a completely different art direction, completely different character, completely different directors. And you have to, adapt you know and 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 all of a sudden everything you did before is erased and it's like okay starting from square one again and i used to get nervous i mean we all did you know because it's like okay can i can i do this i actually on pocahontas i was talking to glenn Keane. we happen to have office offices next to each other i went in there one day i was frustrated about something or something like that we usually would talk to all of the animators would talk to each other because we were all having a similar experience and i said well glenn you know i just I'm struggling with this because blah, 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 this and blah, 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 that, you know, and uh, he said, uh, he just stopped, put down his pencil, you know, and his pencils are like, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he, he turned to me and he goes, Dave, we all go through that. He goes, every single picture I come on, and I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. I think Glenn would say this too. He said, I think, oh my God, this time they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing. And I thought, well, if Glenn can feel that way, then I understand it better. Uh, and I know what he meant. He didn't mean that he doubted his talent. What he meant was, it's like, okay, I pulled that one off. Now everything's erased and I have to start from square one again and, and, and do something completely different. Each picture, each scene, each character is a new challenge. Animation is nothing but solving problems <laughs> in a fun way, in an entertaining way. That's you- what it is. Yeah, you know, you 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 said, uh, oh no, they're going to find out about me. But that that's typical with artists. It's the imposter syndrome. Every every artist I've ever talked to over decades has the imposter syndrome. They think at some point they're going to be found out that they're not as good as they think they are, you know, and uh, or or they just don't think they're any good. Um, and, and at some point somebody will discover that, you know, every, every artist goes through it. Right. That's nothing new and it's not unique to animation, but I know Freddie Moore suffered from that terribly. Yeah. From what I heard from the old guys. You know, yeah. Were. Yeah. But yeah, they, they all, I, I think every artist has that feeling, uh, more so, uh, for some than others, but everybody has it to some degree. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say so. No matter how big you are, you know, it's like, there's always that little bagging down, which I think is good. I think that drive should be better and not absolutely morals. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it, 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 you have to not rest on your laurels. You always have to be striving to improve and, and be better because as soon as you think you're the best, you're lost. You're dead in the water. Yeah, you know, I don't think that's happened to, to really very many uh, uh, of the people we know. That's for sure. Well, you guys are a humble bunch, Outside. right? You guys are a humble bunch. I mean, you, very talented, but I've, I've seen myself, uh, you know, the self-doubt does creep in, you know, even in my, my line of work. And I say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we pulled off a miracle, but, you know, we're just winging it as we go. But talented people like that, oftentimes, you know, they're very humble. And I would think that's also part of it. You guys are a humble bunch. There, are, there were egos. There were egos with the nine old men, too. But, but generally, it, it was a tremendous res- mutual respect. 
and support. I think probably for me, one of the most exciting things of working at Disney was you were working with some of the best people in the industry. Not all, there were some great people outside of Disney, but you had to kind of rise to the occasion. You had to, there was a benchmark that you had to meet. And, you know, and I think we all kind of pulled each other up, you know, as we were learning and growing, you know, those, those early films, you know, were, were a growth period, just like in the 40s, in the 30s and 40s for the, the original uh, uh, animators. Um, yeah. It was all about, you know, it's like, wow, look at that, you know, or, oh, wow, that's great. I got to do something more like that. Or, you know, wow. It was a, fr- a, friend, a friendly competitiveness, you know, but it pulled everybody up at the, you know, at the it same time. Thing. It, w- it was, it was being inspired by and wanting right. to work on that level. Yeah. I, I look back now and I look at stuff that I did and I know I did it. I was there. Um, sure. But uh, I go, I don't even know how, where that came from or how it came out of me. Uh, you know, I didn't know that was inside of me. Uh, I didn't know that I was capable of doing that kind of thing. But it all just kind of happens. You know, you, you, you're in a groove and, you know, everybody's kind of working and trying to make these great films. And <laughs> but you, you, also, you, you also look back and say, you, you, you know, on one hand, you're saying, where did that come from? How did I do that? But there's also those few scenes because we all have them where you just go, I wish I could go back and redo that. I would do that differently this time. You know, I was, I, I hate, I am thankful for deadlines. I, yeah. I wasn't during the crunch periods because no one saw me. I worked 24, seven, seven days a week. Um, but I love, the fact that there is a deadline because and I've told my students, it's like, I have to give you a deadline because if I don't, you will work on this forever. Yeah. And it's the same with a movie. You, you finish a movie. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, you know, those characters left and right, and you can draw them like crazy. And you want to go back and fix those early scenes where you're figuring it out. Like mm-hmm. I would do a model sheet yeah. of a character before I started really animation. And then I would animate a few scenes and then I would go back and make a new model sheet sheet um pulling the drawings that i that were in animation because you learn a lot about how to turn the character around and what works and what doesn't work in the design by actual execution of the scenes you know sure and so you know either me or one of my assistants would pull together a new model sheet that says okay this is how this works in in space so it's a constant growth but honestly when you paint it a color it all kind of pulls together and the average person's not going to notice. Uh, yeah, but we're, we're all, yeah, we, we as artists though are, are hypercritical uh, of, of our own work. And, and by the way, there was the old saying, we never finished the picture. We just released it. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Exactly. There was a great story. Uh, Frank and Ollie, when they were still alive and they were writing their books, they came back to the archives to research the book they were doing on Bambi and while they were doing that, they were trying to fix the drug. They wanted to fix the drawings. I'm thinking, <laughs> that's insane. You, Leave alone. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you finish Great Mouse Detective. Uh, you go on to Oliver and Company. Uh, there, there was the Chipmunk Adventure. I noted on your uh, filmography. Uh, I take it that was a freelance gig. Yes, we all did a lot of freelance. I did a ton of commercials. I can't Everybody did. Everybody, right? <laughs> yes. I can't tell you how many times I've animated the phrase part of this complete breakfast. <laughs> 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 uh, 
uh, it was a great little act, you know, it, it was an addition to your income, which, you know, people are work on the misnomer that we, that we, we, we were paid ridiculous amounts of money uh, during those years. We weren't. Uh, some right. were, you know, some were paid very well, but none of us were paid like movie stars or anything like that. You know, sure. we never got residuals or anything like that. Uh, it wasn't until much later in production towards the end, actually, of the golden age that, that they had to start coming up with pay because somebody else finally valued us. Jeffrey opened DreamWorks and sure. started courting the animators and they started having to pay what the value was. Um, you know, Jeffrey. Yeah. And bonuses on top of that. Yes. And, he, you know, Jeffrey would take you to dinner and fly you around on his private jet. You know, it was like being a movie star for a while. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Disney said, okay, well, we got to parlay up. You know, and, and, and they did. Um, and I think they still got a bargain because I think the, 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 by that point in the late 90s, the work was pretty amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, it, it, it just kept dovetailing onto the next picture, one right after the other. It's getting better and better. You know, we're all just growing and learning. So. You you obviously worked on Oliver and Company, and then went on to the Little Mermaid. Do you feel like Little Mermaid was was, was a uh, sort of a big jump up for you when because you were doing Flounder and the Seahorses at that point? Uh, we, we, I I, I want to try and find out from you what picture was that pivotal picture that you? It's almost going from animator to supervising animator. There, there, there was that transition. Yeah, um, I, I think for me, Mermaid was a real turning point. Uh, I really liked uh, the the freshness of, of uh, Great Mouse Detective or Basil Baker Street uh, because it was a turn to something that was brighter in color and a little bit more cartoony. Uh, I thought it had a very witty story, uh, good direction. the The artwork is spotty and inconsistent to me, not to average audiences. To Artists. No, no, but to us internally, because right. again, it was still a, it was still a young crew. Exactly. It was, it was, they were our silly symphonies. We, with each one, we were learning and, and practicing new techniques and, and whatnot. You know, the, the old guys had the silly symphonies in the shorts. We had these features. Um, so yeah, I started as an animator on Oliver and company. Uh, and then um, let's see, um, we were, Working through that, it was okay. It was the first contemporary film, really, that we did with contemporary voices and whatnot. And I, I actually credit Jeffrey with that, you know, because it was kind of a little stodgy at first. And he said, no, 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 this is the 1980s. You know, let's let's bring in some, and they, they got some pretty top talent. It was kind yeah. of, suddenly you started feeling like, wow, we're, we're, we're to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, you know, Bluth would put out a film and they'd make more money than we did. And then we put out one and, and it just kept doing that. Um, and I think that was a good thing. The competition was actually really good um, because it forced us to really push ourselves. Uh, it was a it was a tumultuous time at the studio because they were wondering if they were going to continue doing it. But each film made money, so they kept working at it. And I think Jeffrey really believed in animation. Um, so yeah, working on Oliver and Company. Towards the end of Oliver and Company, they brought us into the the, the um, Flower Street Theater and showed us the story reels for part of, uh, part of your world and under the sea. And all of a sudden we all sat there and our jaws just dropped. And they, the, after it was over, they turned up the lights and it was pretty much just silence, which 
a room full of animators. That's almost unheard of. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, we all were like, okay. And, you know, we all kind of, I don't know if anyone actually put it to words, but in our minds, I know we were all thinking, this is what we came to do. This is where we wanted to be. Because all of a sudden we were doing a fairy tale. It had a great story, great songs. Um, it was fun and bright and colorful. And so we, we raced at that point to finish all of our company just so we could get on to uh, Little Mermaid. And once again, it was still a pretty small studio. Um, so when we got on that, you know, it's like they really didn't even, for the most part, have real supervising animators at that point. They had people who were kind of lead people on, on a character. But, you know, I know Mark did aerials and then Glenn did aerials. And, you know, so they were both kind of equal in that regard. Yeah. And Barry Temple was doing flounders and I was doing flounders, uh, but other people were doing it as well. Um, and we all kind of had our own little take on it. Um, sure. And then they would have a little character where they just call you in and say, here, Dave, just do this. And back then what I would do, they'd say, Ed Gomber had put this little seahorse messenger in the storyboard, uh, just one scene. Uh, and he had a little Elizabethan collar. And they said, here, Dave, you, you do this. So I did that. I designed it and, uh, and, uh, animated it and they liked it. So they started adding him in more places in the film. And I did all the scenes. Um, and then they, they had me, um, I had Jun Fujimoto do the cleanup. She's a brilliant cleanup artist. Uh, she did really nice model sheets. And then I actually did color models on it. You know, they say, okay, Dave, colors. I'm like, really? You know, mm. but that's what it was like. It was small and everybody kind of did everything. Sure. You, so, you, you know, jumped in. Yeah. That's when you feel like, okay, well, that one's kind of mine. Um, yeah. And I remember I didn't get, the directors were very business oriented, especially Ron and John. They were like no nonsense, but, but great guys, really talented. Um, but I remember at one point, and this was a turning point for me personally, I went in and I showed a scene of, I think it was the scene where the seahorse announces Sebastian, Ignatius, Crustaceous, Sebastian. And, um, Ron was the sequence director on that. And, and he looked at it and he didn't say anything. He looked at it several times and then he turned to me and he said, that's a good scene. And I, you know, I said, well, thanks. And then I kind of like, just kind of brushed it off. And, and he, and he kept looking at me and he kept saying, no, Dave, that's a good scene. And I go, well, yeah, thanks very much. And he goes, he was trying to tell me you're, 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 you're getting it, you know, cause he said, no, Dave, that's a really good scene. That was like, Oh, he really means it. He's not just saying it to get me out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and um, I never forgot that kindness because he really wanted to tell me, I see talent here, you know, and, and in, a, in a way that you can do that without feeling awkward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, I always treasured that moment. There were a few other moments like that uh, for me with other people. Uh, but that was the first one where I thought, wow, I could really do this. You know, I'm, I'm not just a cog in a machine. I'm actually a creative part of, of the team and respected by people I respect. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first time that had happened to me. And I, I was very, very excited by that. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, you know, it was just like, okay, let's get this thing done. And fortunately I got to work on the part of your world sequence. Uh, I did all the flounders, most of the flounders uh, to Glenn's aerials and we would work back and forth. He would do part of aerial and then I would take over when flounder led that part of the scene, I would take over that part. And then at one point he would take over where flounder was, you know, it was kind of a back and forth thing. It's kind of fun back then when they would cast a scene to two different animators and we had to collaborate like that. But uh, 
we did the sequence and we showed it to Jeffrey. And I remember Janet Glenn and I were sitting next to each other in the theater and Jeffrey was a few seats up from us. And we, when the lights came up after the screen finished rough animation, Jeffrey turns to us and goes, and it was going to be cut out. Really? Yeah. He just had no attention span for anything subtle like that. Um, fortunately, the directors came in and they started cutting in little gags with Sebastian. Those weren't in there originally. It was all mm. kind of flounder and aerial musing. Uh, but then they started cutting in those, those Sebastian scenes and that made it work for him. So it stayed in. Wow. But yeah, you know, it, it's like people don't know those backstories about how we, we sweat bullets over this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad it's in the film because it's actually one of my, my, I think it's one of the most beautiful Disney sequences. And I really love that song. I really think it's, it's the moment where we all fall in love with Ariel and, yeah. what, and what she wants. Yeah, and and that picture really was uh, sort of, in my mind, kicks off the uh, the the golden age or the renaissance, if you will, the rena the second golden age. Some people call it the, but really the renaissance of Disney animation that happened in the late '80s and through the '90s. Um, it was kind uh, of a one-two punch. It was Roger Rabbit and Mermaid. Right. Yeah. And, and, and one could argue uh, uh, an American tale uh, from, from Bluth with uh, the, that was produced by Spielberg, Um, you know, because that did really well at the box office, you know? Yeah. It made animation viable, but you know, to be honest with you, I think eyebrows were starting to raise on rescuers, the original rescuers. Cause I remember that was a big hit when it came out. It was, it was like big news and it kind of brought animation it started raising eyebrows with adults that animation can yeah. can be something interesting. Now that, that kind of dipped again for a while while we were learning our craft, but then Mermaid brought that that interest back up, and 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 I think Mermaid became like a date film, a film for young adults. Well, it really did on Beauty and the Beast because if, if, you, if you remember on Beauty and the Beast, uh, there were reports coming back that the theaters were filling evening shows and and it was all adults and it was, you know, date movies. It yeah. was a date movie. I'll, I'll tell you, it was a date movie because I was in well, high school when it came out and it's like the girlfriend was like, would you like to see a Disney movie? And of course I said, of course, yes. Yes, 100% yes. Let's go see Mermaid and let's go see Beauty and the Beast. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I can tell you, yes, date okay. date material for high schoolers for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, it was it, it was that kind of film and we were all very excited on it. And uh, then we did Restaurants Down Under, which I, it kind of gets short shrift because it's kind of stuck in the middle between two big hits. But I actually think it's a really beautiful film. Uh, it was the first film where we did it all digital coloring and it brought back a lot of production value and multiplane and stuff like that. Um, and I really, I really think it is a very, very impressive looking film, um, yeah. but it didn't, it didn't get the, you know, the big trumpet blares that, that, that the musicals did. Yeah, exactly. And and you're right. I mean, Rescuers Down Under was a transitional movie from the traditional hand-painted cells to the digital technology. And that's really the the first uh the first time that they're doing all digital ink and paint and compositing uh which which really allowed for a lot more in the way of multiplane type 
of shots because you could do that digitally fairly inexpensively, whereas using the actual multiplane camera uh, became it was it was really cost prohibitive, you know, because you had so many cameramen that had to work on that multiplane camera to make it to yeah. make a shot. You know, so so as the years went on, uh, they used the multiplane less and less. Uh, in fact, I think it might have been used once or twice uh, on the Little Mermaid, uh, and, and, and and that was it. Uh, you know, that was kind of it. Um, but I remember thinking back then when they were saying we're going to do digital paint, I said that's ridiculous. It's always been on sales. You know, it's it's like you know how that you know how can we do that? And then after we got on customers, I looked back at the cells. You know, and I saw like every cell on Mermaid had to be hand painted, and the bubbles. Oh, you know bubbles. Yeah, they they had to send they had to actually send that over to uh, uh, Asia uh, to have have uh, ink and paint done on it's some of those. Yeah. White. And then they had like a, a, an ink highlight. Um, yeah. It, slowly. I'm like, ah. and then I thought, well, that's ridiculous. How could anybody make a, you know, a million different paintings for every frame of film? You know, right. so it, it did a switch on me. But I will say this about production value. I remember on Mickey's Christmas Carol, there was a huge, huge brouhaha about should we airbrush the giant's eye? There's a scene where Scrooge opens its curtains and there's a big eye there. Yeah. And it was like, should we airbrush it? Should we not? Because of the expense and the time-consuming process. Well, that was a completely. They finally decided to do it, but you know, at that huge expense. But then after, when when digital came in, it was like everything was airbrushed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So what? But rescuers down under, like you said, was a little bit of a um, you know a, a downbeat uh, financially uh, when it came out. But uh, it was followed by Beauty and the Beast. That was huge, and I knew from the moment I came on that picture that we had a huge hit. I, I watched, well, I knew that with Mermaid too, um, but Beauty in particular. Okay, Beauty had a rough start. You know, it was, it started as more dramatic film and it ended up going in a completely different direction under the hands of Kirk and Gary and Don. Um, not that the other one was bad. It was just a different take on it. And they wanted to go with something a little lighter. Um, so my, that was my first stint in on a feature as a supervising animator. The way it kind of came about was I was on rescuers and they pulled me off of that to do a short, which happened to be Crane command. Correct. And they wanted me, Rob Minkoff was directing and he specifically asked for me to be the supervising animator on Buzzy. So I had to do model sheets and stuff like that. And even though there was some models already done, I had to do like expression sheets and stuff like that. Um, and Brian McEntee was doing the art direction. Mm -hmm. And then they pulled Rob off, like after I got my, my model sheets approved uh, to go work on Roller Coaster Rabbit. Mm -hmm. And they brought in Kirk and Gary to direct. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. I've never worked with them. I knew them both, but you know, and I respected them, but I never worked. So through the course of that, I got to work on some great scenes. I got to work with great people on a short that was pretty breezy. It went pretty quickly. Uh, and then I went back to rescuers and finished it. But then because of that association on that little short, Kirk and Gary said, and Don said, uh, and, and actually uh, Brian McEntee was a big uh, fan of my work said, let's bring Dave in to do Mrs. Potts uh, and then later Chip. Uh, and that was my first opportunity. So I was a supervisor on Buzzy 
which wasn't, you know, credit or anything like that. And then that led to, you never know what things are going to lead to, or, you know, sure. and so that led to Kirk and Gary being put on rescue uh, on um, beauty and having me do that. And that was the beginning of a huge upward swing for me um, doing, you know, doing supervising animation. Yeah, and, and just for our listeners, uh, Cranium Command was done for uh, a show down at Epcot, right? Yes. Um, and uh, Al John, right before we got on the air, you were talking about the audio animatronic of Buzzy being stolen from Epcot. Is that right? Yeah, there's a there's a huge, huge uh, kind of internet uh, whodunit um, there on YouTube about who stole the Buzzy animatronic from. The, the cranium command and uh just a couple years ago and i'm thinking david do you have something to do with that maybe <laughs> i am getting rid of stuff and i am in the garage so i can make sure <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I bet, I bet you that audio animatronic will turn up in an auction at some point down the line. And, and when it does, I'll be curious to see if, uh, if, uh, the Disney company comes stomping out and saying, wait a second, that was stolen. They <laughs> might. <laughs> Or he may have gotten the direction of Jimmy Hoffa, and we'll never hear. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we never, may never, we'll never, we'll never really know, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll never, we'll never really know. Exactly. <laughs> but but Beauty and the Beast again was one of those pictures that uh, it was musical theater put up into animation uh, thanks to Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, uh, and uh, and that really, if you were to look at the at what sort of ignited that renaissance of Disney animation, you have to say it was, it was really the introduction of, of sort of the musical theater concept, if you will, to animation. Yes. Yes. I remember when I was living in New York uh, or when I was visiting New York, maybe it was after that, I went to go see Little Shop off Broadway uh, Mm -hmm. and I, I loved it. It was fantastic. The songs were great. The story was great. The way the story progressed, the songs progressed the story. I thought to myself, I actually said to my wife at that time, I said, you know what? These guys should be working at Disney. About a year and a half later, they were. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody else had that same thought. Uh, and I don't think anyone had a better handle on integrating story, character, and, 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 and music than Howard Ashman. Yeah, um, I think that he was absolutely brilliant in the way that Cole Porter was brilliant. Um, I think that he had a very unique way of approaching lyrics, uh, and then the you know teamed with the great uh, or, or um, arranger and, and and composer you know Alan Menken. Yeah, uh, it was a match made in heaven, and all the films that they touched had a very unique an entertaining voice, I will say. Yeah. Uh, and I think not completely, but they they are largely responsible for the huge renaissance. Oh in, yeah. In, 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 in the success of, of the, the, the animated features. At Disney. Oh, a- absolutely. Without question. In fact, uh, people can actually really see a wonderful film called Howard by our friend Don Hahn, um, uh, all about Howard Ashman. Uh, and that, that is out there. I believe it's available on Disney plus. Am I correct on oh, that? Al John? Yes, yes, sir. It's a, it's a great docu, uh, docu, uh, I was going to say documentary. That's it. <laughs> Words yeah. eluded me, but yes, it's great. Yeah. 
Um, but Dave, uh, so you do Mrs. Potts uh, and and Chip uh, on Beauty and the Beast, and obviously, I, I want to ask about this because I know I know our listeners will be curious. But when they're recording the voices, and the, when when they're recording Angela Lansbury, who who does the voice of Mrs. Potts, are you there for those recording sessions? And are you doing any kind of sketches or just observing and watching the uh, actor do the lines? Yes, we did. The supervisors and sometimes the animators would go to the sessions. Uh, there is kind of a mystique built up about that because I don't really try to caricature the people who are are, are doing the voice. Uh, a lot of people over the years have come up to me and said, Mrs. Potts looks just like Angela Lansbury. Well, she really does. She doesn't look anything like Angela Lansbury. She looks like a, she looks like a teapot. <laughs> right, right. But <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, part of the animator's job is to make the characters believable. And so one of our jobs is to mesh the voice with the image, to, to make, to draw mouth shapes that are reminiscent of the tonal qualities of, of the, vo- the vocal performance. And uh, also to get nuances of um, acting style. So when I started on the film and once I realized, because th- there were designs done before Angela was even cast. So it definitely mm-hmm. made to look like her. Um, and I did go to the recording sessions, but more to talk about the character with her rather than to draw her. Um, but uh, what what I did was I watched almost every film that Angela had ever done, you know? mm. and and but and I got a lot out of you know her acting style. She has a very distinct acting style. But, but where I saw it the most was her popular show at that time, which was Murder She Wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I saw in that, you know, because it's a TV show, was a lot of headshots, which is perfect for a teapot because that's all she is. Right. Um, but I was here doing this and you know, taking her head and, and accenting her dialogue really quickly and stuff like that. And I go like, that's it. I got the base, which is the shoulders, and I got the head and that's what I did. So she doesn't actually look like Angela Lensbury, but she sure as hell acts like her. Well, I was going to say, you pick up with the mannerisms and you, and, you, and you infuse the mannerisms into the actual cartoon character. So Angela Lansbury obviously is not a teapot, but you're infusing her uh, head gestures and the way she speaks, uh, those, those little ticks uh, that are you know, unique to individuals, you're putting that into the character. Exactly. And, and for example, I, I didn't go to the first recording session because it was done in New York and they, they were recording the song Be Our Guest. Mm-hmm. It was originally sung to Maurice. Um, and uh, they changed it later and she had to go back in and redub just one. She did it in one take. No, no, that was Beauty and the Beast song. No, but, but she did go in and, and change it from she to he or from he to she at one point. But anyway, they recorded that and then I got that. And the first stuff I did was animating the POTS section of Be Our Guest. And that was great because she was turning around and jumping and moving. I got locomotion down. I got volume down. I got everything down. Um, and then we showed that to her at her second recording session. And I remember watching her look at the monitor and, and all of a sudden the light went on. She's like, and she, she turned to me and she goes, oh, that's, what you, that's how you're interpreting the performance. And, and I said, yeah. And then we talked about, you know, how I thought, you know, I was watching Retta Shaw, who was a character actress who was one of the maids in um, Mary Poppins, the original Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. and, you know, and characters like that. And she said, oh, yeah, upstairs, downstairs, I watched that. So we talked about who this character was and what where their lot in life was. And we each kind of enlightened each other for about an hour 
And then she went back into the studio and I, I swear to God, she got it like that. All of a sudden her performance was like through the roof mm. and she became that teapot. In fact, there was one scene where somebody picks her up or something like that. And she has to go. Oh. And rather than just doing that, she actually goes, she actually was in the booth going like that. It was just really <laughs> fascinating to watch her transform that performance. Once she saw how it was being interpreted, interpreted mm. you know, there's a lot of focus on the voice and, and certainly that's a, a big part of who the character is, but there are two actors interpreting a performance on every fully animated film. It's not just the voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, in the, with the genie, no one's going to sit in a dark theater watching a black screen and listening to Robin Williams do that soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the mashing of what he did, what Robin Williams did in the recording studio with what Eric Goldberg did brilliantly on mm-hmm. paper. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing we need to remember about animation. Yeah. And Angela Lansbury, by the way, is a lovely, lovely person. I had the pleasure of of meeting her uh, a number of times and her husband at the time, uh, Peter, um, uh, who was uh, just an g- absolute gentleman. Yeah. yeah, they are great people. Yeah, she, was, uh, she did one of the um, interstitials for Fantasia 2000. Yes. Um, and so we, we were with her down at 20th Century Fox when they were filming all that. So very, very lovely person. So I have, I, I was very proud when, when one time a couple of years ago, I heard an interview with her and she said Mrs. Potts was probably one of, probably her favorite, one of her, I don't know, I'm not going to paraphrase her. I think she said one of, if not her favorite performance that she Wow. Ever, wow. Ever, she ever did. That was, that yeah. was handsome. Well, that's, that, that's gotta be nice to hear. <laughs> well, you know, she, th- that is because she did some really terrific stuff over the years. I mean, I still remember Manchurian Candidate, but she was that evil. I've <laughs> 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 never seen that man. She is evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, she was uh, a tremendous talent. Well, she is a tremendous talent and just wonderful to work with. Well, listen, I, I, we, we're, we're, we're running long here, but I want to just touch on the fact that you did work on Aladdin uh, and uh, you jumped onto Lion King after Aladdin. Uh, and, and did a little bit of work online. A little bit, a little bit. I just helped um, Tony and, and and Mike Surrey out with a with a little bit of that Luau sequence and a few yeah. scenes here and there. But it was their character. I just kind of came in and helped while I was on Pocahontas developing uh, Flit for that. And then Victor and Hugo, the Gargoyles, and and uh, uh, Packard and uh, um, Harcourt uh, in Atlantis. And and then I did the last thing I did was one one by one. For Fantasia, yes, Hunt. yeah, which uh, which I, I I worked on with you, just beautiful. briefly. <laughs> I, I really love that. It was a great great note to go out on. Um, so yeah, I was there for twenty years, and then I just why did you leave? That's what I I'm I'm just gonna say. Why did you leave at that point? Well, there's no way of sh- of candy coating it. I did not like the direction the studio was going. I felt like they were disrespecting the artists. Uh, I felt like they, they had resentment towards us. Uh, it was obvious. I mean, I heard quotes from meetings where they would call the assistants asses and stuff like that. And I just, I didn't like it, but I'm not going to dwell on that because I, I really enjoyed the, the 20 years I was there. I really enjoyed doing the work. Um, it was on a film where I always said, what I love about working for Disney is they always push me to be my best. Yeah. And when, and I thought to myself, when they don't want that anymore, that's when I go. And, 
at one point on one of the films, one of the production people said, we don't want it good. We just want it done. And I, I thought, yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, I, 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 I totally agree with you, Dave. I mean, listen, you know, there, there was a point there where they were referring to the artists as pencils. Yeah. You know, uh, there, there was a lack of respect uh, for, uh, for what this group of artists was doing. And, and, and I think everybody has their threshold uh, and, uh, and a lot of great people exited when they hit their threshold. Uh, uh, of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so you left and you were doing, uh, some stuff, uh, for TV, uh, writing a little bit of, uh, storyboarding. And then I got bored and I, I I said, you know, I can't do something. So I started thinking about Eric and I went into training and I built a very successful training program uh, that taught full animation. It was passing on the gauntlet. Yeah. New generation at uh, Laguna College of Art and Design. Uh, and then after 10 years of that, I decided I needed to let go of that. I think I had done what I needed to do there. And I, I didn't like the, once again, I didn't like the cost of the education. I don't think people should be $100,000 with debt when they get into uh, college. Uh, and I don't think in art, a degree is as important as in some other skills. Uh, talent will out and portfolio speaks for itself. So Dave and I, who developed that program, uh, decided uh, that we wanted to develop our own program, which was a program that had top-notch people who knew what they were doing, teaching classes in skills that were useful in animation and and pushing people to be their best at an affordable price. Mm. So with the, the, you know, the um, pandemic, it was perfect to go online we hope to be a brick and mortar school someday, but for now we're going online and we're, 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 we've been hugely successful. People are like coming left and right. And, and um, so we offer classes to two students who are looking for specific skills or, or to improve their skills and even young professionals who want better skills in certain areas. Uh, it's more for college level, but we do have some people who are a little younger. We also do one-on-one mentoring online, which is something that no one really does and right. An hour a week, you know, and you pay as you go. Um, but what's really good is that I see a lot of the people from our generation who are now kind of what we're winding down and going into retirement that still want to teach and want to bring something back. So I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity for people to come to us and say, I really like to teach a class in blah, 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 blah. This is my dream class. And we say, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can come with no long term commitment, teach a class, and then come back whenever they want. So, you know, we've got people like Chris Bailey, Pichot Hunt, um, Jamie Lopez. They're all teaching classes this coming uh, summer uh, semester at Cat Animation. So very exciting to see that people are getting the uh, background and the foundation they need uh, from people who really know what they're doing. Now, are are those classes uh, then banked as part of your uh, library archive uh, for CAD animation? In other words, can can somebody come in and say, I'm going to pay, you know, a subscription fee and go in and look at all of these previous classes or how, how does that work? Uh, no, I don't believe you can learn animation by watching videos or reading. Okay. I think there are great materials out there to help, but I think... I learned in the trenches working with people who would tell me what to do and why. That's the important thing. Yeah. 
it, you have to know why you're doing it. And, and also, I believe in drawing the best out of the person that I'm working with, rather than trying to make them something else. Sure. This to be this. Uh, so I have a very unique philosophy, that, which is based on what Eric did and taught. Uh, and so um, that's the philosophy I have behind that school, is passing on that gauntlet, passing on the stuff that I, do, I think very few people are teaching right now, which is how to actually act and perform and control your work. And so we teach at this level so that you can work at any level. Yeah, sure. So, so that's, that's kind of the whole impetus behind this. It's not a money-making venture. It's how to get that information out to people who really want it. And, and there's a need for it. I mean, you, you obviously are uh, a student of animation. So, I mean, you're, you're looking at uh, newer animated features that are coming out. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, right. and, and you can't help but critique some of it, right? I mean, I, I know I do. Yeah, some of it's really good and some of it's not so good because they don't quite understand it. A lot of it is mimicking design styles and, and, and techniques rather than getting inside the head of the character and developing new techniques. You know, the old guys didn't have techniques to fall back on. They were, they were creating them based on the need and the character. And that's where I think real creativity in animation is. But there's two different levels of animation. There's the family entertainment level, which is mostly what's out there now. And then there's the artistic level. And I think that art has fallen away from animation, and that's why we call cat animation cat animation because it's classical art training. Yeah. Animation. So there are animation-related classes, but we have classes in art direction and story, all different kinds of things. It's not just animation. Yeah, a- animation today is commerce. I mean, it's it, it's they're they're trying to grind stuff out as quickly as possible to make as much money as possible. I mean, I think that's a reasonably fair statement, with the exception of a handful of films out there that are still being crafted as art, as an art Klaus. form. Klaus is a perfect example. Of Klaus, something. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just done on paper. People think, oh, it's done digitally. Um, well, yeah, part of it was, but part of it was done, most of it was done on paper and kind of given that short shrift. But I think there's a level of subtlety that you can get on paper that you just can't get in digital unless you've had years of experience working on paper. That's sure. my personal opinion. Yeah. There's people but, who argue that. But, but that goes back to, Dave, I mean, uh, you know, you have to, as, as being a great animator, you have to really understand the basic principles of animation. You know, the, those things that uh, Frank and Ollie put down in the illusion of life, you know, the squash and stretch and overlap and, and all of those uh, principles, regardless of, of the medium that you're, you're doing, you know, whether it's hand-drawn or CG or stop motion or cut paper for crying out loud, uh, you have to understand that in order to create something that's really beautiful to look at. Everything you said are, are just tools. Uh, you know, whatever me, yeah. I feel like whether you pick up a pencil or a stylus or a mouse or a, a, a jointed puppet, it's what's underneath that that's important. Everything else is technique that can be learned. What's in here in your heart? Yeah. That is something that you just have to work at. Like any actor, any great actor, it's work. It's hard work. It looks like fun. And if it's done right, it should look like fun, but it's a lot of work. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, Let me ask you this. Uh, You're focused now on the uh, 
Cat Animation Studio, which is online. How do people find that? We uh, have a website, which is now currently updated to uh, reflect our new teachers and our new class roster for the summer session, which starts in June. Uh, we are accepting, accepting applications now. Uh, it's 12.50 for a semester. That's 12 classes and two meetings a week. And the website is www.cat-animation, uh, don't forget that dash, dot com. And um, how many students do you uh, let into the class or uh, into a semester? Uh, I, I remember, and the reason why I asked this, Dave, is because we both went to CalArts, and CalArts only accepted 30 students a semester, uh, a year, right? right? It, was, it was 30 students for each new class yes, yes. that started in September. So, uh, uh, and, and I don't think, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, uh, that there, there was, uh, it was probably single digits by graduation of that class, if they were lucky. Yeah. You know, well, we're, we're very studio student centric here, you know, for, for years, you know, I saw, you know, it was all about tuitions and stuff like that. And I said, no, no, this is about students and it's about them getting the, the, the attention and the information they need. So each teacher decides the cap for their class. We have a theoretical cap of no more than I think 12 people per class mm-hmm. time. Um, but sometimes it's about right. I think, I, I mean, I think that's about the sweet spot. Don't you? Right. Well, I think it's important that there's one-on-one and everybody gets personal attention. So that's why we keep it there. But we do let the teachers decide because they're paid by the amount of students, you know, sure. 60% of every class they teach off the top, not off the bottom. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah. we pay better than most schools for teachers as, as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's all about mentoring. It's about, that personal attention. Uh, and then our mentoring classes, which are per hour, you know, you get complete one-on-one with, with, with us, you know, and yeah. we, we find out what your needs are and where you are. And then we build a program specifically for you. Mm. Uh, so it's very, very reasonably priced and it's there to pass on this very valuable information in a way that I don't think anyone else is doing. It's awesome. No, no. I mean, I think that 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 kind of um, uh, passing of information that happened between uh, the old guard at Disney, the 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 nine old men, and the the uh, the folks that had been there for decades, you know, uh, honing the Disney animation process, uh, they they pass that knowledge on to the next generation. But I, I think that's been lost since. I don't think that we have that. That's not happening anymore. There are good teachers out there, but there's a lot of people teaching that have never animated. But but there's there's not that that isn't happening at the studios anymore. There there isn't that um, uh, seasoned uh, group of artists that's passing their knowledge along. Uh, a lot of these studios are are ebbing and flowing talent in on a picture by picture basis. That is sad because I don't think you get that continuity. And like I said, that, that yeah. it is cauldron. Yeah. Well, that I, I, honestly, that was the magic of um, the success uh, at Disney, and especially in, during the renaissance of animation. It was because you had that previous generation that really passed on a lot of that knowledge to the next group of artists. And, 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 and absolutely, in my heart, I believe that that, that was part of the, the huge success of that period of animation. And 
now now it feels more factory like. Yeah, it was it was a pretty magical time. But I believe I wouldn't be teaching if I didn't believe that that can happen again. And that's why yeah. I'm doing it because sure. I want to be ready when and if it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Al John, do we have any questions? You know, um, I I don't have a whole lot of questions, but I I have I have something I have something. Uh, Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. So we want to, inquiring minds want to know it, uh, what is your favorite attraction at the Disney parks? Ooh, that's a tough one. You worked on so many of those the the Renaissance films, and there's so many of those out there. So I really love. I'm I'm a purist. I really love Haunted Mansion and um, uh, and um, Pirates of the Caribbean. I just think they're brilliant and they were done by brilliant people. And 50, 60 years later, they're still great. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're as good as they ever were. And no one has ever done any better. <laughs> if you were Seminal. to, if you were to design an attraction, David, um, would, would it be something along the lines of like the Omni mover type of haunted mansion? Or would you like to do a, a thrill ride? Like, uh, something like, um, uh, like California screaming. What would you want to do? I love California Stream and I really do. So do I. <laughs> I still, to this day, I go on roller coasters like you wouldn't believe. I love them. Um, I would probably do a drive-through ride, which kind of described the process of animation in a, in a real way, not in a candy-coated way. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there are a lot of mystiques built up about the actual production uh, of animation. But I think it would be really interesting, if, especially in Florida, um, if they had some kind of an attraction like that. Uh, yeah. They had at one time the fishbowl. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was more of a walkthrough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I would not have been comfortable with that at all. <laughs> yeah, but somewhere they had an animatronic Glenn Kingo. <laughs> that, that's the next that's a final frontier david you know we we have to have the the fishbowl with all the, the legendary uh, animators from disney and and everybody just is kind of doing their own little thing you know for for the end of time you know they're all just working on projects so yes yes dave what 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 is the one thing one one piece of advice that you'd say to a young artist out there who's thinking about going into animation um what what would you what would you pearls of wisdom what would you say to them there are several that i say to my students a lot one of them is it's okay to compare yourself to other people if you're you're striving to do better but not to depress yourself and to say, I'll never be as good as. Um, what, what I try to do with all of my people is to talk to them and find out what it is, who they are inside and what they want to communicate and then help them to do that with, give them the skills they have to bring out what's the best in them. You know, every one, every single person at that studio, when I worked there, you know, Glenn's and the Eric Larson or Eric Goldberg's and, and, you know, and, and the Nick Ranieri's and Will Finn's and all, you know, and all those wonderful animators, they were all unique individuals and they were bringing part of who they were to the characters. Mm-hmm. And you could interchange the animators with the characters and you would get different interpretations of those characters. So what I look for in a person is I talk to them about what they love, where their passion is, what they want to do. And then I help them find that. I don't tell them who to be. I give them the skills 
to explore characters and animation and to be the best they can be. And I think that's, that's all we can expect. There's so many people who are depressed out there because they're not famous or they're not this or they're not that. And to me, it's completely the wrong focus. The focus is, what do you want to do? And another thing I will say is that we are living in a world that unfortunately was, was handed a false bill of goods. We've seen movies and heard stories about follow your bliss, you know, just wish hard enough and it happens. Well, that's partially true. You do have to really want it and wish for it, but they leave out the most important part, which is you have to work like hell to get it. Mm-hmm. And people are falling to their knees in despair because it doesn't just happen because they want it enough. And I have to say, it's there for you. You can do it, but it's not going to be dropped in your lap. You have to work for it. We that's all it. did. And that's hard work. Hard work. It is hard work. And there's a lot of disappointment, but that doesn't mean it's you're, you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, that's what I honestly believe. And that's what I'll tell anybody. Fantastic. Well, Dave, I got to say thank you so much for coming on uh, the Skull Rock podcast. I hope you had a good time. And I really do want to bring you back uh, at a future date to drill into some of these films like Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, a little bit more than, you know, we kind of sort of glanced over some of those films. But I've said this before, when we have great artists on like yourself, we can't possibly cover your entire career in an hour or an hour and a half. So that's why we will invite you back at a later date to talk more. Thank you for your kindness. It was very nice of you to have me. I had a great time. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Have a great time. It was great seeing you. And we look, uh, I'm really much success with Cat Animation Studio. It sounds fantastic. We love it. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's awesome. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes for sure. And if there's anything else you want us to uh, promote in the links area, just just let us know. But uh, what an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Algen. It was very nice meeting you too. Skull Rock Podcast. Now for some real user power. Your weekly immersion into all things Disney. What an awesome interview, Dave. I mean, what a great guy, Dave. He really is, you know, and and just such memorable characters that he's animated on. I mean, who doesn't love Flounder? I have a Flounder plush around here someplace. Yeah, you know? right? So do we. I mean, you know, it's and it's great. Uh, all these great kind of characters and character moments that come from, you know, what Dave brings. I mean, just Mrs. Potts and Chip and the Sultan, all kind of round, squishy, just lovable huggable characters right and then um and then also buzzy i'll have to say you know i know that he was a you know the supervisor of that whole short film for epcot but you know lovable great fun characters and uh i'm glad that dave is passing it along to the next generation of uh, new animators out there absolutely you know i gotta tell you though you know i mentioned the flounder plush i i walk around my house and i see stuff 
whether it's framed art or or a plush or you know a, a statuette, a maquette or something, and and I just get these floods of memories that come back. And, and I have to say, when I when I see Flounder, I always think of Dave Proxma. You know, <laughs> I, how can I not? You know, he he's such a great animator. So it was it was really terrific talking with him. I do want to have him back because we have a lot lot more to talk about uh, on some of those later films with him. I have to wonder if Flounder is a little bit modeled after him and his smile because he does have that kind of, you know, that kind of boyish. I, I, can I say it? I'll just say it. he's got a boyish face. He can he can definitely put that smile on and be like, hey, you know what? That's Flounder. I see Flounder in your in, in, in him. <laughs> there you go. You know, maybe Flounder's really based on him. Yeah, just a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Terrific animator. Absolutely. So yep. listen, next next week, Al John, we have Chuck Williams, the producer of Brother Bear coming on. Love it. Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him because Brother Bear is such a gorgeous you know, nature film in, in my is. mind. I mean, it's, it's mystical. It's, it's got beautiful, beautiful nature uh, in it. And uh, I can't wait to talk to him. Yes. It's a grossly underrated film. I, I, I love that, that story. It's just one of those just classic Disney tales and uh, you know, brother bear can't wait to talk to Chuck about it. Looking forward to it. Right on. Now, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show. It's on your favorite podcast platform. You know, if you're streaming it online, we do appreciate it. Don't forget to give us those reviews. We'd appreciate that. Whether it's on Apple or Spotify or Google, please feel free to do that. And follow us on the social media lanes as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, You can follow Dave and myself also on LinkedIn. And I did get some messages uh, from LinkedIn. So thank you so much uh, for you adding me you know because i don't i don't normally uh post other than work stuff on my linkedin but i do appreciate the the people that uh, really do enjoy the show so email us dave at skullrockpodcast.com or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com dave any final words no that's it i'm looking forward to next week our i think our show is uh uh, really coming into its own. I've been I've been getting a lot of nice messages and comments from various folks, and uh, and and you know I gotta say, keep the comments coming, keep the um, questions coming to us. Uh, we love to hear from you, so please uh, please send us some emails and please like us. Uh, on the various social media platforms. Yeah, I forgot to even mention, Dave, that uh, over the next week or so, we're also going to be a featured podcast on the other channels of Sorcerer Radio. The Sorcerer Radio Network is back on Live 365. It's uh, one of the longest-running fan-run stations, and we're going to be joining a cavalcade of All Talk. They're doing an All Talk um, uh, stream, and we're going to be uh, featured on that stream, so uh, it's it's great wow, to be that's part fantastic of. Fantastic news! Yeah, it's great to be You've part. You've been holding of out on me. I know. Time. I forgot to mention that <laughs> they're like, "Hey, look, you know, Skull Rock Podcast. We'd love to have us uh, have you on <laughs> as a part of our all talk channel." And I said, "Well, of course, yes, because you know I've been with Sorcerer Radio now for a long time, so it's uh, it's great to be part of that family of podcasts uh, that are being featured." on the all talk station. So for more details on that, of course you can log in to srsounds.com. So thank you once again for joining us until next time. Have a great week, Dave, you take care and we'll see you then. You too, Al John. See you next week. All righty. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John. Go. 
I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. I'm Al John Go, co host of The Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.